You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today we've got a follow-up interview on uh, a follow-up podcast, even on a film we covered when it was in the process of being made. That film was uh, Tear Me Apart. And today's guest, can you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Tom Caravan. I am a writer and producer of Tear Me Apart. I'm Alex Lightman. I'm the director and producer of Tear Me Apart. Indeed, indeed. Now, we spoke to you, was it 12 months ago? Uh, yeah, I think it was just after we had shot the movie. So, yeah, it would have been about a year ago. Can you please tell me what, give me a synopsis for Tear Me Apart, please? Yeah, sure. So, Tear Me Apart is a post-apocalyptic cannibal love story. Uh, it's set 12 years after all the women have mysteriously died out. And these two young brothers um, are living out of the way um, on a beach in Cornwall, and they turn to cannibalism to survive, and then they end up falling for their prey, who's a teenage girl, and she might just be the last girl left alive. That's right, that's right, yeah. So, in that time, you've now reached world premiere stage, haven't you? So tell, tell the world where Tear Me Apart's going to have its world premiere. Uh, yes, we're really excited. So we finished the movie uh, about two or three months ago. June and we are world premiering at the Austin Film Festival in Texas on Halloween um, which is pretty cool so yeah we're really excited. That's, that's quite an amazing uh, quite an amazing bit of news to hear. Um, mm. Now then, then subsequent plans for that is you've got a European premiere at where? Uh, Ravenna in Italy um, that's the European premiere which is actually the day after. Oh very nicely timed. Um, so that's worked out quite well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then from there we'll sort of uh, we'll see where we go. Those are the festivals we've got booked in at the moment. Okay, so the hope is you'll get more. Yes, so this is basically the beginning of our festival run now. Got you, got you, got you. And then then you've earmarked what to, sometime in two thousand sixteen for a more general release on VOD or whatever whatever the way to release a movie. Yeah, I mean very roughly we're thinking nine to twelve months. 
but we've obviously still got a lot of data to gather on the uh, on the festival run. So we'll see we'll see how it goes and sort of um, make decisions as we go along. Really. Okay. Okay. Now, before we go into details about sort of, because I think what we want to discuss is that idea of how do you get a, an independent film out to audiences. Do you want to just give us a brief overview as to what's happened between that? What sort of took the time in terms of getting the film ready for now? Oh, sorry, for two or three months ago that that you'd finished shooting sort of 12 months ago? What were the main what were the main activities you were up to getting it finalised? Oh, before we, between when we spoke last time and... Yeah, 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 yeah. Just what was, what, what is, what's, what's took the lion's share of the time up? Uh, Alex, why don't you answer that because you were more involved. Sure. Was... Um, so, basically, post-production. So we spent um, between June 2014 and I think we picture a lot in December 2014, just December 21st, I think. Yeah, December 21st. Um, so that was the offline, um, mm. during which time we were also sort of developing the music a bit in tandem with it. Um, Ernesto, who's actually the third producer and cinematographer, um, and VFX and supervisor, artist, yeah. um, he was sort of beginning to look into what VFX shots we needed. Um, and then after that, when we hit picture lock, we went into the greys, visual effects, um, we got the final music sorted and we went into, uh, the sound mix and all the photo design and all the sound design and everything. So yes, it's been busy, very busy. So just for the, for the lay person out there listening, sure. is that, is that, is that considered a long time to get all that stuff finalized after you finished the movie or is that, would that, is that what you'd plan? Is that, is that the kind of time you'd expect it to have taken? I've been told, sort of loosely speaking, that it's pretty good for a very low budget um, indie film. Mm. So, yeah. um, to put it into perspective, um, something like. I don't know what film you're talking about. Stephen Hawking's film. Oh, Theory of Everything. Theory of Everything. Um, so I'll just start that sentence again for you, Stuart. It's all right. We can, we can, we can handle, we can handle in, in chat. Go on. Uh, <laughs> Um, so yeah, just to uh, to put in perspective, something like the theory of everything I was told took around twelve months from wrap to delivery. Okay. Um, so and, you know they had money, lots of money, and we didn't. So we're pretty pleased <laughs> with it, to be honest. Ours it's, was um, ours was eleven months actually. Eleven months. Eleven months from wrap to completion, which means our film's better than the theory of everything. Yeah, that's 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 what it equates to. That's the box I just ticked then on yeah, my. Yeah. Uh, Oh my, where does this film sit? No, so that's really good. No, I just wanted to give people a sense because I think, I think it's, I think it's always, it, it, it's often hard for people who don't make films to see what the process is like because obviously we can, we can easily picture the sort of writing of one and the shooting of one, but actually the idea that then when that's all done, there's a period of another year at the very least where you're going to be playing with the film, doing things that make it ready to be shown. And obviously now, now it is. Um, it's 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 how do you get that film to eyeballs? Now, what what have been some of the things that you've been sort of learning along the process of trying to get it an audience, and what have you sort of been coming up with with a view to trying to fix that for yourselves? Not necessarily fix the film industry, but try and fix it for yourselves so people can see the movie. I just I was just going to point out just as a minor step backwards that go on common misconception about filmmaking is that it's all about being on set. Um, if you think about the context of our film being a two, three year project, we were on yeah. set. Yeah. So filmmaking is 
it's made in the edit room, really. So that's that's the bulk of the time of filmmaking is sitting in an edit and doing all that stuff. Um, so yeah, just again, just to give you some context on that. No, that's that's a that's a good point to make. Good point to make. So so when you when you when you're with that finished film and you started sort of obviously sending it out to film festivals for the hope of like the world premiere you've achieved. Um, what were your thoughts about how you were going to get it out to audiences and what have you learned thus far and how has your view of the world changed? Well, one thing we've learned is that once you've finished a film and you suddenly have nothing to do, <laughs> you, spend, you spend two years with all these checklists and milestones and every, you always have something to do. Oh, we've got to do the sound mix, we've got to get this guy in for recording, we've got to, you know, all this stuff. And then you've done it and then you send it out and then instantly you go... Ah, there's nothing we can really do right this second. So you go a bit mental. That's go stage mad. one. Yeah. Um, and we kind of have to wait and then trust and rely on the strength of your film to try and garner some interest, really, to start with, at least. Um, and you are giving it over to the world to start forming an opinion on, you know, on your baby. So. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't really answer your question. But no, 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 it does. It does. It gets a start because what you're saying is that that. You're in control of everything up until that point to when you start asking people to either exhibit it yeah. or sell it or distribute it. You, you know, you, you can you can you can make time no matter what your day jobs are and, and how you manage to you know wangle your resources. You can always make a film, and obviously, like you've described in the post production side of things, you have your checklist and you go through it and you make sure the film goes through all those things, and then at the end of it. You've got a finished movie, but then the challenge of getting it seen is then in the hands of others, isn't it? It's from what from what you've just said. Yeah, I mean, it's because we spent we went to Cannes twice. We went to Cannes just before we shot the movie. Yeah, and I'm um, not obviously at the film festival to the Cannes marketplace. Of and we course. Went to this year, so we met. Um, you know, we tried to meet every sales agent and distributor in the UK and um, some international international um, companies as well. Um, mm. So that was who we were. That was who was waiting for it, basically. So all these people that we'd met had sort of gone, oh, yeah, you know, let's let's take a look when it's ready. So those are the kind of people we were sending it out to. Um, what did you, what did you, from those conversations with, with people like sales agents, what did you learn from them in, in the kind of, in that kind of prep period when you were talking to them about what they maybe were looking for or how your film might appeal to them? Well, as a, as a filmmaker, what we learned from them, one, was that our film was a product when it gets to that point. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's like it's your baby, you're really attached to it, you're close to it, but suddenly you're talking to people that are seeing 20 movies a day. Yeah. Um, and you have to kind of, it's a slight shift in your perception of, of everything you're doing. So you, you have to start taking a slightly more business stance from it. But, again, you know, it, it was important for us not to be phased by that as well, to keep our enthusiasm about it, because every film is a unique product. Every film is different. So there is an audience for it somewhere. Mm. Um, so, yeah, what we learned from them really was... Some of them were the voice of doom and gloom, certainly. Yeah. So some of them just... And I, mean, I don't know whether that, that is the state of the industry, whether they're just they're just saying that to, you know, be realistic. It's your experience, isn't it? If that's what yeah. happened, that's what happened. I mean, so you're sort of learning that the industry is in a tough place um, at the moment, Um and, you know, they've, they've got all these kind of, you know, problems that they're trying to surmount in the sense that 
DVD obviously is not so is not as big as it used to be, mm-hmm. um, and it's an interesting one really because you know obviously the thing that sells movies at the top end at the higher budgets is still actors, and that's not changing. You know, actors are still you know known talent is still the thing that sells movies. So it's very difficult for these guys to you know have a look at our movie which hasn't got any known actors in it, um, and at that point didn't have a festival run either, which is important to mention. So it it hasn't got any when they were looking at it, there was nothing, there was no weight behind it, really. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for them to look at it. And then there's so many, um, I don't want to say middlemen, but that's the kind of thing. Is in they have to sell it on to distributors and distributors have to sell it to the cinema. There's so many people involved in that process that um, it's risky to sort of take, take our movie. And it's not just one person that has to make money off it. It's not just us that have to make money off it. It's loads of people have to make a living off this product. So mm. it's very... They're in a very tricky situation, um, and it was that's that's what I kind of that's, I think that's what we sort of learned was that everyone is in a it's difficult at the moment, and everyone's just trying to figure out the best way to you know get great movies out there, get great content out there, and make money and stay afloat. I think it's difficult for the sales agents. Yeah, it's, I mean they're working into a particular business model, which you know they might want to look at but um yeah it just it made us sort of think that there are lots of ways of getting a movie out to your audience now that are just dvds um and that the thing that you may have thought of as the obvious route is maybe not the most effective anymore so you know we really want people to see our movie we're really proud of it um and we've got the movie we set out to make it's got the scale that we wanted and we we want people to to watch it and we want people to enjoy it um so it kind of made us evaluate and start thinking about well let's think about the best way to connect with the people that we think would like our film mm-hmm. um that may well be distributors it may well be something else and that's just the world we live in now mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I mean, just just to go back to your point about um, about star power, and mm-hmm. I know I've had people on on the podcast before, and you know they've they've been to those those meetings at Cannes or AF, AFM and things like that, where the first meeting they weren't they were talking about their film and it had no star power, mm-hmm. and then the same film twelve months later with a star attached creates a whole lot more excitement because they can quantify the star power. The film actually made no, you know, the film was a variable that didn't matter in that conversation almost, which yeah, is a kind of, for film fans, will, will maybe seem a bit odd that the people involved with selling movies don't see the film bit as the quantifiable thing, because that's, there, there is a big, there's a big slew of films being made, and they've all got, other advantages to them. So like you mentioned, somebody could have their dates in the calendar for festivals already dead. So then they go, okay, we maybe can sell it on the back of the fact that it's going to be in those festivals. And and obviously, like you say, if it's got a star in it, then we can maybe talk to, we know that that star is worth X, Y, or Z to, to our marketplaces. Yeah, I think it's definitely true. I think one thing to, so yeah, maybe to to film fans that kind of um, perhaps, you know, don't, fully understand um, or aren't aware of the process is I think that's very true with the traditional model mm. but it's also very much budget dependent because again I mean this movies are just products in a marketplace it happens to be one of the most competitive marketplaces in the world um, so therefore if you make an expensive product 
then you either have to shift a lot of units or you have to sell it at a higher price. Now, with movies, the price of movies are kind of set, as in a cinema ticket is a cinema ticket. Fine, it depends on perhaps, you know, where you live, but you don't, you know, I'm not going to go and watch one movie for £10 and another one for 25 unless it's 3D or something like that. Mm. Um, so that because the price is set, then it's the amount of units that you have to you have to sell. And that's when that's all of a sudden all this budget and then actors come in when we were doing it. So our budget is only seventy five thousand pounds and we shot the movie for sixty thousand. So therefore, we don't have the number of the same number of units to shift um, in order to make a profit on the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, that's got to be well. Everyone's different, but ultimately, that is one of our key aims: is to you know, is to is to um, to make a net profit. I think it's important, you know, if you're going to people people kind of forget that because it is an art form. Um, but if I was to design and build a chair, and in the marketplace it's worth ten pounds, I'm not going to spend twenty pounds on the materials to make it. True. So why should I do that with a film? Because ultimately it goes into a marketplace. So the biggest kind of creative challenge I say to all filmmakers is making the product for what the product is worth and doing your best artistically with that rather than for what you want it to be made with. Because, you know, if it was up to me as the director, this film would be made for 20, 30 million pounds. But that's like making the chair for 20 pounds in a marketplace that dictates it's worth 10. Sure. Not sensible business, is it? No, not at all, not at all. So, um, so what, and, and, and the other thing is, is that obviously we, we, in, certainly in the UK, we see, we see what's on at the cinemas and they tend to be multi-million pound, multi-million dollar movies with big marketing campaigns. So access to cinemas is a difficult part of how you get your film seen mm-hmm. and, and, and has has been, you know, tackled a lot in, on podcasts here. People have been looking at that problem and going, okay, I'm not going to get in the cinema. The DVD market is is declining year on year. There is the internet, which hasn't yet decided how to make films available. There are different ways. There are different ways of being heard. So, what 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 were your what? How did your thinking develop then about how you could get your movie seen? Where, where's that led you? So Alex and I are actually funny enough. We were um, <clears throat> we talking about this the last few days in quite a bit of um, detail and indeed yeah. actually for the last couple of years. Yeah. So when we started this process, we were aware that, um, that film distribution sales, and when we say aware, just from talking to people, we didn't have any on the ground research at that point. We hadn't been mm. to can. So it was slightly hypothetical, but we were aware of it that, you know, we are in a bit of a no man's land, as you just, you know, described certain platforms are disappearing and, you know, there's not quite anything yet there yet to replace it. But it means that there's a huge amount of opportunity. Like, it's just, that's the amazing thing about it. And that's where we started, was knowing that there was going to be a huge amount of opportunity. Um, but this was, I mean, when we were originally kind of pitching the, the concept and everything just to try and get finance, that was two years ago, two, two and a half years ago. So who knows, you know, who knew what the industry was going to look like in two years? Who knows what it's going to look like in a year, to be honest, when we release? Mm. Um, but it was something you, you were talking about, um, the opportunity of the budget level, weren't you? And the kind of shifting. Yeah. Well, there was just going back to the sort of the finance thing. For instance, a lot of filmmakers still quote the Blair Witch Project <laughs> as uh, an example of how they can make their money on their film. Uh, forgetting, of course, that the Blair Witch Project came out at the kind of 
early days of the internet and it hit a zeitgeist that is just not there anymore. So it's not relevant anymore. It's, it's, it became, the thing that always surprises people when I say this is the Blair Witch Project came out before iPods existed. Now, we have iPods in our phones now. You know, we, we live in the future where we have <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. So it's just not a comparable product anymore. So what we're looking at is a world where it's just, it's moving so quickly that and that everything's everything it's so hard to tell what's going to happen in a month and like tom said even in filmmaking worlds two years ago people were going if you're making a low budget film make it a one room contained thing because you can't compete with the production value of i don't know a 10 million pound film mm-hmm. uh-huh. now if you don't have a drone shot you don't have an aerial shot in your film people are like why don't you have an aerial shot in your film you can go out and get a camera that flies you know <laughs> um, yeah, there's no reason not to have, because that was it, well, yeah, it was so funny, two years ago, you know, we had this, we wrote this story, this big epic thing, and no one thought we'd be able to do it, because they were like, you can't have that many locations, I mean, we had over 50 different sets, over 50 different story locations, um, you know, we shot across 15 physical locations in about 18, 19 days, right. um, which, you know, which everyone was saying, you can't, you can't do that, but we did that, well, a year and a bit ago now, um, you know, just through using what you have, not what you think you need, you know, so we just use the resources. And now, of course, you can do that. Um, and another thing, like, as Alex said about, um, Blair Witch Project, I just looked it up just to be sure. So everyone quotes, again, then another thing that people quote is paranormal activity. Uh-huh. That came out before the iPhone. Came out the same year as the iPhone, in fact. So, again, quoting paranormal activity as a, yeah, fine, it was a huge success. One of the most successful movies in history based on percentage of budget to, to box office takings. But again, it came out in a different era. I mean, it's not relevant anymore. Mm. It's like saying the fastest car in the world drives at 90 miles an hour. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it doesn't matter anymore. It's just because technology is moving so quickly, people are finding it very difficult to quantify what kind of a length of time is for something to move on. And now we're so, we take for granted so much that we have an iPhone, for instance. Um, and we have, we have a computer in our pockets. It's insane, like, and because it's evolved so fluently, people, I don't think, see the shift anymore. Mm. It's only when you really look back at kind of 15 years ago and you're going, oh, hang on a minute, I've had one of those personal organisers that you had to put in <laughs> dates, yeah. or a Seinfeld, in the Seinfeld episode, it's, you know, a tip calculator. Um, but, yeah, so in the same way, with, when it comes to technology and distributing your movie, that's within the same technological shift, broadly speaking, so... You know, something might come out next month that just wipes the floor with everything. It's very difficult to know. Um, so, great. Well, I was, was going to say, but I think I think some of the sort of more tangible examples, and these aren't necessarily technology led. They're just they're just about changing and shifting patterns in how films might be distributed. So, for example, in the states, you had Troll Hunter, Norwegian language movie, so subtitled, not a cat and else chance in the theaters, really. It goes on a VOD platform, proves itself to be so popular that the most unlikely thing happens because the evidence is so quickly and readily available. It can then elevate itself and become a theatrical release. So it ended up doing the reverse of what normally happens because it it proved itself to be popular. And because obviously what it looks like, that the idea was there would be a demand of people to want to see that on a big screen. Um, um, The the, uh, the more recent example is... um, 45 years, is it? The uh, Charlotte Rampling movie. 
where um, where that was sort of day and day release with I think the Curzon chain and people like that. So it was away from the kind of multiplex chains, which I've since learned you know, certainly over this this last twelve months, they're they're part of the kind of slowing down of what change might happen because they need an exclusive window of time to have a film in there to for them to show. So if you're going to sue, if you're going to if you're going to put a film out with through the multiplexes and then within too short a time have it available on other platforms, they don't want to know. Yeah, and and, and obviously smaller cinema chains like the Curzon and in America you got Animal Draft, um, who are doing that, who um, doing those deals with um, with Bloom. Bloomhouse, in fact, have got a new label called Bloomhouse Tilt, which is. Admittedly, they have got a Universal Pictures studio distribution deal, but they're going out to half as many cinemas as a normal release now so that they can use horror fans like the uh, religious film fans are doing. I don't know if you know, in America, there's been a boom in terms of um, Christian films, and that's become its own like subgenre now where there's an audience for it, and they're not having to spend the same amount of marketing money to get people out. They just need to get it in the right places, and then that audience will act as advocates for the movie. And Bluemouse believes, as from what I read in the trades, that he he believes the horror fans will almost act the same as like the faith fans, where if you show it in half as many places, you'll create a buzz around a film <clears throat> that will get people out to see it without having to do the kind of three and a half, four thousand screens and the and the amount of marketing spend that entails. Yeah, I mean, so there's something. There's something quite interesting about what you were saying. And going back to the, you mentioned about the, the VOD kind of release. Yeah. So people often, people often sort of, we're all sort of talking about VOD and, and digital is the way to release a movie going forward, but no one's quite figured it out. And Netflix are doing something and Amazon Prime's doing something, but no one's taken the, we don't have an iTunes for the movie industry and there isn't, there isn't a, no. a, a single thing. And there's something just to, cons- something that we've sort of learned as we've gone along and something to, we found really interesting was to provide was to put the movie industry in context of what's happening in every other industry in the world at the moment, which is that everything's being digitalized, and obviously it's happened to music, but with the um, oncoming onslaught of three um, D printing as well, it's going to f- affect the manufacturing trade. And so something about, and this is actually covered in a book called The Curve by Nicholas Lovell, which okay. I recommend to anyone. The Curve by Nicholas Lovell. It's covered. So he says, so when you when you've got DVDs, when you have a physical thing. Right, so you're trying, this is, this is the idea of the mass market. You have a physical thing which you're trying to sell and you have your competition. Okay, and there comes a point whereby you can't sell it for any less than a certain amount because you'll actually make a loss on it because the DVD itself costs X amount of money. The material, the packaging costs, say, two pounds. So below two pounds, I can't make money on that thing. Forget the content for a second of the movie. I'm just talking about the physical thing. Yes, so then you have to make money on the content. So, it came about that eventually DVDs were considered around about £10 was a fair price and it kind of went down. That's what happens in the mass market is it would start expensive and then consumers would drive the price down until it reached a fair point. With digital, because there is no physical thing, the natural lowest point is zero. That is that, that's, where the, that's the end price because there's no physical thing for anyone to make a loss on it. There's no cost associated with distributing something that costs nothing to distribute. So this is where VOD, I think, well, I don't know for sure, but in terms of where it might go, is at the moment people are still distributing movies on VOD as though they're a DVD and a physical thing, but the price is just lower. So we're saying, right, well, the cost of a VOD then is £3.50, £4. 
But actually, it doesn't. It doesn't cost. It doesn't cost the producers or anyone that's made the movie any more money, whether they release it, whether one person watches it on VOD or whether a million people watch it on VOD. Now, fine, you can argue there's marketing costs and associated costs, and that's fine. But whereas with a DVD, there was, you know, an, an, immeasur- um, an escalated kind of cost of producing the DVDs and indeed storing them as well. So this is why the price could potentially be driven down, and it can be, it, it theoretically can be driven down as far as zero. So that's something can, to contend with in moving forward, I think. Which... However, what you said interestingly about the Christian films as well, uh, Stuart, was that because it doesn't cost you to distribute things, you can hit your niches for yeah. no cost. So before, let's say we wanted to send out our movies to horror fans in Hungary, and the only way they could watch it was on a DVD. So we have to pay X amount of money to take a punt on how many DVDs we want printed. So that's an outset the cost. We have to ship it to Hungary, we have to put it in a shop, and we have to hope they sell. Right? And that costs money. And there's no guarantee of that coming back. It's all on sort of third-party data. Now, on the internet, we can go, oh, there's a load of people in Hungary that are interested in our movie, um, and we can get it over to them for no money if we want to, because of the internet. They can watch it. There's no cost to us. You know, you could watch our film now without us sending you a DVD, without postage costs, mm. without anything. Mm. Um, so it's and then what Tom was saying about the manufacturing industry is the same deal, which is basically if you can three D print something in your home and it can be totally customizable and it doesn't cost you any more, then maybe you start doing that. Mm. Um, obviously, it's not advanced enough yet to kind of do everything, but. It, you won't need a factory anymore with lots of people working no. in it to manufacture products. There could be a there could be a three D printer in the same way that there used to be printers in the post office, and you'd have to go to the post office and print something. There now might be a three D printer in your local shop or post office, and you can download the digital file for a whatever it is, whatever you need, a chair, and you can go to the three D printer and get it done. So it's the idea that the 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 mass market as we know it potentially is shifting. Um, away from the idea of, you know, what, I mean, it was Henry Ford, wasn't it, really, that kind of started it by mm-hmm. saying, you can have any colour you want so long as it's black. That whole idea that actually I can make something really cheap if everyone wants the same thing. Well, now we can all have the same thing for a lot cheaper and we can customise for cheaper as well. So it's just, it's interesting how that then opens up the niches and how that then applies to the film industry, as Alex was saying, about finding these niches. Um, and that's, it seems to be something the film industry is already um, starting to discover certainly the indie film. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Plain, plain, plain devil's advocate here, though. Yeah. Um, a film as a product mm-hmm. still has to battle... However you however you make it available, and like you say, there is the potential to make it available very very readily at, at the end of a Google search. Essentially, um, how do you how do you get people to do the Google search then to find your film, or get people indeed to be looking for your film? Because there's one thing a film being available, which is kind of like the, the digital idea is that long tail effect, which is that you can obviously just sell you can sell one forever and a day. You know, every day you can sell one without worrying about storage costs and all that kind of stuff or where they live. 
which is what you're saying. But actually, how do you get people to okay. tear me apart as opposed to how do you make it available? So within the context of, of things shifting, um, so at the moment, so in the, you know, maybe 20 years ago, before the internet and before there was always content on the internet, mm. um, you, could, you weren't necessarily vying for people's time, you were vying for their money. Nowadays, because there's so much content, there is just not, people don't have enough time to watch all the TV they want. They don't have enough time to certainly watch the movies that they want. They don't, you know, I don't even have time to watch the minute long clips on YouTube that I want to watch. <laughs> so the question, then it's therefore it's all about good content. And this is something which I think a lot of people are, are missing. And it's like, I don't, I don't think necessarily it's bad advice, but people say the most important thing is that you've got to get out there and make a movie. Okay. I think that's, that's good advice. Do take action, get out there, take a movie. But actually the most important thing, and it's going to sound really obvious. Most important thing is you get out there and make a good movie. And there's two reasons for that. Firstly, um, if you've never made a uh, feature film before, then there's always the chance that someone's going to take a punt on you. So you've made a few shorts and music videos and someone goes, yeah, do you know what? This person knows what they're doing. I'm going to take a punt and, and we'll do it. If you've made a bad movie, there's a chance that the industry is going to look at you and go, yeah, now you're a proven idiot. So we're not going to take another pun on you because you've made a terrible first movie. And your audience, for that matter. And your audience. So therefore, you know, making a good movie is important. And the re well, how this ties into to your question is that because there's so much content, you have, to make you have to make good content. You have to make great content. So the first thing you have to do is make an amazing movie and allow it to... Um, allow it to sort of rise to the top, which is what, for in the in the traditional sense of, of films at the moment, is of course the festival run. So that's your first port of call. Mm -hmm. So we're about we're about to find out. This is our first. You know, we have the movie we set out to make. We're really happy with it. I mean, we think we have a good movie. But this is our first. You know, contact with the enemy, if you like. <laughs> this is our. This is the first time we're going to get it into the marketplace and see what people um, think of it. So if it is good and we do start getting the good reviews then that'll start to kind of, that'll start to get the ball rolling. And then it's about really keying in and finding, right, who is our niche audience here? So we've already done some tests and we're already working out who the demographic is in terms of, um, you know, uh, age and, and simple, um, uh, simple kind of quadrants like that. Um, and then from there, you then have to sort of really, really narrow it down further and further and further, um, which is all, until we start getting feedback from people who don't know us, then it's kind of, it's, it's difficult to say. We have strong ideas, but, you know, we've got to wait until we get... Are you, are you still hopeful then that part of your festival run will sort of catch the eye, stroke attention of a sort of authoritative voice? Now, at one point, that could be a popular critic. Um, who says this is a great movie? At the other end, you win a prize, and then you're in the trades. You know, people go, "This won best feature film," and then that then that reaches people that weren't even at the festival who haven't even seen your film, who are looking for, and I hate the word, but it's true, who are looking for content to distribute. So that challenge of you going around that could turn into people contacting you because you may have won the best feature film at Austin Film Festival, for example. Well, obviously, with any... Come a bit nearer to the microphone. Sorry. Uh, so with any, any product, whether it be a film or a chair or anything, you need some sort of... By the way, we're not selling chairs. We've we mentioned chairs a lot, but we're, we're not trying to sell chairs to anyone. Cannibal chairs. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so you, you need some sort of third, in my opinion, third party um, impartial critique because it's all very well of us saying it's great, but if an audience doesn't like it and there's no word of mouth and critics think it's bad, then you're not going to watch it. I, I don't want to, like, I haven't got time to waste on watching bad films because I can't even watch the one-minute YouTube video that Tom was talking about. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think the festival run is very important in garnering a stamp of approval from the people who, well, from for everyone, really, for people who want to watch movies. Mm. So if they see your film, they don't know who you are, and they go, you know what, this is good, um, then other people are more likely to watch it in the same way that if you're going to go to see a film with your family someone goes oh we're gonna go watch this and someone goes oh is it any good yeah oh yeah i've heard it's meant to be really good you go okay let's go and see it then but if someone goes and again really obvious but if someone goes oh do you want to go see this movie and someone goes i've heard it's really bad you go okay don't worry about it then yeah it's i mean also all this stuff kind of ties into um what you you know what you're saying about kind of you know is it is is this the sort of the route you go in order to try and get this audience i mean Again, I mean, people make movies for different reasons, and it's something that we that we learn, and we were sort of told along the way, not along the way, we were told at the beginning, sorry, which we learned how important it was along the way, which is to have really clear aims about why you're making this movie. Not just why you're making a movie in the first place, but why you're making this movie. So, our, and it, it's, it's, again, it's going to sound really obvious, but actually, um, you know, I've met, met teams of filmmakers who they're not quite sure why they're making a movie other than they sort of say, oh, I want to launch my career. Great. That, that is a valid reason, but you need a bit more than that. So our two aims were firstly, make as much money as possible for our investors. And secondly, um, lay the foundations for our career, laying the foundations for our career. That's both from a business point of view and, and a creative point of view. So creating the brand of movies that we want to make, which is yeah. intelli intelligent genre movies is what we're calling it. So at the moment we're doing a romantic horror the next one, we're thinking we're going more towards a psychological thriller, but intelligent genre movies. Um, so with that, in terms of the the way that we're approaching the sales distribution and festivals, it's with those two aims in mind. Mm. And, and that sounds really obvious, but those are the two aims that have kind of governed every decision we've made from, you know, casting and crew to locations to script to story. Like everything that we've sort of done has been governed directly or indirectly by those aims. Um, so then coming to sort of finding finding the audience for that but that's what we've sort of got got in mind is it does that make sense in terms of no like, no no it does. yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah. so because we're sitting here saying well you know we think that as filmmakers we want to do this and this but actually if there are filmmakers out there this might not be the best thing for them because their aims might be completely different their aims might be do you know what? i don't care about the money i just want to have a massive festival run that that's the aim for the movie calling cards film which is perfectly valid and that's fine so it depends what your aims are i think and and so what what ideas have you got then given given you've clearly sort of gave given it some time to look at how the world has changed and how the world is changing in terms of how people are going to watch films um or how you're going to get your film out there is it something you want to keep hold of and be in control of or is it something that you see as being somebody else's role because it sounds to me like potentially nobody ever stops producing a film whereas with if you hark back to the kind of nostalgic days of the past and the very recent past at that you know you the producer went there you go sales distribution people tell me when we've started selling tickets 
Now, it sounds to me like you're, you're, you, may, you may end up deciding to cling on to your film and doing it yourself, as it were, rather than, rather than having to rely on somebody else to make it happen. Our, our aim and our thinking now is we want to get as many people excited about this film as possible and connect with our audience. Now, if we're releasing in 9 to 12 months, the reality of that is however best it is to connect with that audience may not be clear now. So we're just trying to get lots of people excited about it, get a good festival run, get people liking the movie, talking about the movie... So then when we do release and we have all that information and the latest thing or the best thing to hit those audiences is about, then we go with that strategy based on the game, the goals that um, Tom's been talking about. So it, it's kind of, I know it's a bit of a wishy-washy answer really, but... Well, no, 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 it's, it's, it's quite understandable. I mean, it's, it's, it's in marketing terms, you're just doing, you're building awareness about your film. Yeah. And, you know, and there are, there are very affordable ways, i.e. festivals, and there is a league table of festivals. So the more premier the festival is, the more attention your film will garner if it's A, selected, and B, nominated for a prize, and C, wins a prize. You know, all those things are going to help you to keep your film in the limelight yeah. while it's not got a release date and while you're building up a thing. Hopefully what will happen, I guess, in the if, if we go for the perfect world, is a dialogue will begin with a growing audience wanting to know when they can see it. Well, and more importantly, because of the world we live in, we can go back to our audience and say, how do you want to see it? Do you want to see it on your TVs? Do you want to see it in the cinema? Do you want to see it on your phones? Do you want to see it projected on Tom's torso? I hope not, but there you are. Um, there's a two-way dialogue we can open up, which is so empowering, which is something that hasn't necessarily been able to happen before. So to some extent, it's, well, to a whole extent, really, it's up to the audience. How do they want to see this movie? Which is exciting, I think. Well, I guess so, yeah, because I mean, I think, I think recent developments in certainly how you can see a film at the cinema, um, I, I saw Northern Soul. Uh-huh. When that come on, Northern Soul, when that come on, and that was an hour screen, which for those that don't know, hour screen is like almost Kickstarter for cinema tickets, right. where you book a slot, and then you try and sell 40 tickets, and if you get to 40, you get that slot in the schedule, which yeah. is really, really empowering in terms of an audience. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side of it, you've got the um, Tony Benn documentary, which avoided cinemas altogether, uh-huh. and was screened in town halls where Tony Benn had spoken. So you, you kind of, without even needing to start that dialogue, you're kind of, you've, you've made a film which has got a certain cachet and you're going, do you know what, this makes more sense. I mean, I, I, I recently had um, Johnny Owen on here who's just, who, who wrote, and produ- wrote and produced and starred in a film called Svengali a couple of years ago and he's just done a documentary called I Believe in Miracles which is about the kind of six-year period of Brian Clough's tenure as Nottingham Forest manager where he took him from second division through to European Cup winners twice, which it's just like the equivalent of Huddersfield Town two and a half years ago winning the league this year. Right. You know, that's kind of how ridiculous it was. Um, but they, they premiered that film, obviously given what the subject is about, at the city ground. Four and a half thousand people went to watch that film. Yeah. They're number 11 off yeah. one screening in the UK box office. I mean, that 
tells speaks volumes about how film distribution is kind of changing a lot. Um, and I think, I believe, I mean, while we're talking now on the, what date are we today? October. We're October the 13th. Um, friends of mine run a, like, art space up in Hornsey, at the old Hornsey Town Hall in North London. And they've got a huge hall in there, as you can imagine, because it's a town hall. And Picture House are going to put a pop-up in there and show Lobster. Right. The Colin Farrell movie with yeah. uh, from the guy that did Dogtooth. Um, you know, so it's, I think, I think that the, me the means of getting a film out there, because like, I guess, I guess your ability to shoot a film over multiple occasions is to do with the fact that kit is a lot more, is a lot cheaper these days than it ever was. Yeah. And equally, I think the ability to show a film has got cheaper as well. You know, you can, I'm not saying you would do this for cinema quality, but you and I could easily get a digital projector off eBay for hundred quid and be showing it on a 10 foot screen. And that, again, that wouldn't, I mean, two or three years ago, that wasn't possible. It's kind of, it's... Something for us, um, sort of, that, that we're kind of looking into, um, is, I mean, from the very beginning, we knew that our demographic for this movie is going to be, well, one of our demographics will certainly, hopefully, be the younger generation. It is a romantic horror. There is a coming-of-age element to it. So it's, you know, it's a little bit like Let the Right One In, but with cannibals instead of vampires. So there is a coming-of-age element in it. So... We, we got a BBFC rating of 15, which is what we wanted. Um, we recently found out we did, we, the trailer went live on Facebook. We did a, a paid boost on Facebook. It didn't spend much money, but it gives you access to the statistics. Um, how reliable these stats are, I don't know. But um, we discovered that 86% of the people that viewed the film, which was around about 15,000, um, were between 15 and 17 years old. So I so viewed the trailer. Viewed the trailer, sorry. Yeah, sorry, watched okay. the trailer. So between fifth, so and again, I don't know how accurate the, the stats are. We have to take them with a pinch of salt. But so you know, we're looking at going right. So we we're looking at we've got a demographic of maybe say fifteen to twenty one year olds or fifteen to twenty five year olds or, or the young the young demographic. So how do fifteen year olds engage and watch their watch the content? So I have a fifteen year old nephew. So I asked him, how do you get content? How do you find content? He's not on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. Um, but you know, they're using Snapchat and Instagram and, um, Imgu and like all these other things, which actually I'm not familiar with. Um, so how do we, how do you, so one of the questions that we've been asking is, so how do we get into that niche? Because if, if we're using Facebook and Twitter to advertise, great. But what if our audience isn't on Facebook and Twitter? Cause Facebook's not cool because, um, you know, Facebook's not cool to my nephew because his mum's on Facebook. So he's probably not. Do you see what I mean? So it's like so we're talking about um, uh, kind of you know doing uh, you know screenings and things like that. I actually think where to start is to find where is your niche audience and where do they operate online. And I think that for us, that's actually most of it's free. That doesn't cost you anything other than your time to figure that out and talk to people. Um, well, previously that may have been sort of sacred information, mm. but it's all there now. Mm. Um, so again, it's it's empowering for us because it means we can go. Oh, where are the people that want to see our movie? Oh, they here. How can we get it to them? Yeah, we can. Um, and for them, it's like, oh, I want to see movies like this. Um, mm. And I, you know, I can very directly. Well, we're we're on Periscope, for instance, yeah. and you know, we can have people directly talking to us about the film and our movies and how we make films. And I just love the idea when I was like fifteen of being able to talk to you know, a director of a film that I directly and say, hi, how did you do this scene? 
and being able to get that direct interaction with them, which is amazing. I mean, you couldn't do that two years ago. You can do that at the beginning of this year. Oh, I don't know when Periscope started. March it started. March it started. Yeah. So I was was going to say, yeah, that seems to be the, the direction of travel for, for what we experience on the internet is that we're beginning to develop the notion of the event because obviously TV had the event for a long time. Obviously X factor is a, is a key one at the moment. And obviously live sport coverage is, is another one where TV becomes, you know, the event to be there is to share in something. And I know that, uh, I think I've seen it with people trying stuff out with YouTube as a place where the, the screening of a document, I mean, these documentaries that I've seen, um, screen documentary is set for a, a broadcast, as it were, at certain times, so everyone can join in from, you don't have to be anywhere, you don't have to be any one place in the world, but you can join in with this experience of it being a premiere. Now, I'm not sure how, how successful that was or wasn't, but it struck me that that is kind of where, that's the kind of thing you can do that you didn't used to be able to do. And like you say, what it offers is people the opportunity to have an, a live dialogue with the filmmakers, with each other, about the thing they're watching, which I'm guessing is what happens when people are watching X Factor Strictly or whatever it might be. Um, all the kind of cross transmedia stuff that happens. Um, which I guess, I guess the, the, the kind of downside of that is that, that the film can, can become secondary, can't it? If you're not careful. I don't think so, because in order to have any of these discussions, you have to have a good movie. So whatever happens, you have to have good content. The content. No, 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 no. I don't mean that the content's bad. I meant that the the experience of watching the movie becomes incidental to the experience of having a chin wag over whatever social media platform you happen to do it through. If I'm if I'm watching a film while a Periscope live feed is to you, then I've got two things going on, haven't I? Oh, absolutely. But I think that, that's yeah. all I mean. It's kind of that idea that you know yeah. you could. We're kind of splitting our time a bit. Sure. I mean, what's interesting about that, however, is, you know, the, the the way people consume media, like, you have to adapt to that as a creator as well. So what we've been talking about is making a story world. It's not about making a film. We've got graphic novels being developed. We've got novellas being written. And, we're, you know, trying to do all these other things because there is this sort of transmedia culture and chance of someone going to the theatre and being totally engaged in a very direct way with your content is still, you know, people still do it and it's great and obviously we love it, um, but it's it's not the only way people engage with content, which mm. again, yes, that could be a negative because oh, I want people to watch your film, but it could be a huge positive because you've got an opportunity to connect with people who want your content in loads of different ways. And it just opens up all these fascinating avenues and things, you know, that you just couldn't do. I think there's, there's certainly, I mean, an easy sort of comparison, but where we can now go anywhere. is like, if you watch a DVD and you really love the movie. Now for me, always, you know, growing up and wanting to be an actor or writer or whatever, or being in film, yeah, you'd go to the extras and you'd see what the behind the scenes extras were or whatever. And most DVDs, the the, the extras were were rubbish. So now you don't have a DVD. Obviously, if you like a movie, you then Google it. So imagine if, and that's, and it's like not just the behind the scenes footage, not just the making of, not just interviews with people, but imagine if there was, and this is where people are going, is they, if they, if they're Googling your movie or they're Googling your content, it's because they haven't had enough of it yet. So if they're Googling you, 
because they've liked what they've seen so far, then you better be ready to give them more and keep them and pull them in even more. And if they love you that much, then, you know, then take more of their money. I don't mean like steal it. I mean, like they might be ready to give you more money, you know, in the same way that, you know, I've got my favorite bands and I've got my money ready for their next album when it comes out. Um, so that's what we're kind of looking into and developing is that there's, and as Alex said, it's not just, it's not just that people watch the movie and then Google us and find that there's, um, you know, find that there's novellas and graphic novels and story world maps and all kinds of other things going on within the world. They could come at it from the novella and then suddenly find, oh, cool, there's a movie. Didn't know there was a movie. Um, so giving them different access points, I think, is something uh, which is which is kind of key going forward. And it doesn't have to be that you're developing an entire story world like we're, we're doing. But um, certainly, I mean, we're trying to think of the movie as fine. It might, might be that it is the, the tentpole. It's the marquee kind of point of our story world, but it's not the only entry point. No, no. Well, I, I mean, recently I've got my coverage of Fragfest. Uh, there was a British film called After Death, um, which is written by Andrew Ellard. And as part of that movie, they did a prequel comic right. that went alongside the movie. So you've got the movie, and you've also got this comic which tells you about the universe before the film, the sto- where you pick the story up in the film, mm-hmm. takes place. Which is kind of, I mean, that was a novel one on me. Um, it wasn't for sale, I might add. It was just something that was given away as part of the kind of preamble and, and to help. I mean, it was used in, a, I guess, it wasn't given away at all. It was used as part of pre-publicity. You know, it was like, look at this shiny, shiny thing. And then you, you look at it and you go, oh, look, it's linked to a movie. So maybe if I like the comic, I'll go and, I'll go and look at the movie. But it does, I think, I think go back to my point before, what all these things we're talking about, really, it, it, especially in the indie world where you're, you're like like you did with this one. You started with the blank bit of paper. You know, tell me apart is a script you developed from nothing to be this film right now that's about to go and see audiences and and hopefully build an audience. But it strikes me that the way it expands as a universe from that film, there is there is it is never going to stop for the producer on a one film. And it's like where do you? It's, and I'm not, I'm not asking for an answer now, just a more rhetorical question, but, you know, it's going to come a point soon where it's going to be, where do you stop as producers of movies and where do you move on to your next project? Because, like, if, for example, there is life in a film, then why would you not, why would you not want to stop it? But where, where, and these are, these are things that hopefully in the near future we'll begin to find out, but it's, the, the opportunities are there and, like you say, it cross-fertilises because if, if some other paratext that you create around your movie ends up being a reason why someone pays to watch the movie, then it was worth doing it, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think to answer, I think the the simple answer to that question of, you know, how far, basically, you know, how long do you milk it and how far do you kind of go with it is the same as when you're writing a script, you're writing a story, as in, I would say, finish half a beat before the audience get bored. So, and no, and when is that? Who knows? I don't know. But, you know, don't... <laughs> No, I, I really enjoyed it, but don't do a Lost. You know, don't. <laughs> I, I loved Lost, but, but lots of people got bored of it because they just carried on for too long. So I think um, be the office. Yeah, be the office. Yeah, exactly. Like always leave them, always leave them wanting more. That's the number one rule of show business. Be the office. There you go. Yeah, you know, always leave them wanting more. That yeah. should apply to everything. Always. Yeah. Even. So for us, like we're thinking. Um, I mean, so, I mean, actually, funny enough, it's, it's um, uh, after death is in competition with us at the Austin Film Festival. So they're in the same category as us. So we're really looking forward to 
um, to watching it. Hopefully, we'll get the opportunity. I don't think I don't think they're screening the same time as us. Are they? No, they're not, no. no, fine. So we so we'll hopefully get a chance to watch it. Um, and um, and that'd be really interesting. And, and it's I mean the whole you know world premiere thing and what they've done with um, their graphic novels is something interesting that we're trying to do as well. So we're not just with the graphic novels, but we've got this scavenger hunt in Austin. Okay. Um, so because we're going there and, and this is our world premise, so no one's seen the movie yet. So no one's, there's no reviews out until you people have seen it. Mm. Um, so we wanted to do something fun. We wanted to kind of celebrate the fact that we're going over to Austin. We've got our world premiere. So we're doing basically, we're calling it cannibal hunt. So it's a geotag scavenger hunt, which will take place the day of the premiere. So the premiere is in the evening and in the afternoon, people can basically, um, we'll release some clues online and then you follow the clues around and you find, um, key codes around Austin Film Festival, which then unlocks content online. So content exclusive to, uh, to the Austin Film Festival, which you can then share and tweet and that kind of thing. So tying into the, what you were saying about after, um, after death, giving it away free, that's definitely something which, you know, filmmakers need to can, or, or should, or should look into. And I, you know, it's not just the behind the scenes stuff because that's the, if someone's watching the behind the scenes, they're already a super fan. They already love the movie so much that they're going to spend another three minutes or 30 minutes watching behind the scenes. So that's not really an access point to the movie. I don't think the trailer is an access point, certainly, but what other free stuff have you got at your disposal that you can give away to get people excited about the movie? Um, so yeah. Oh, well, I guess, I mean, you, you, it, the, with, with you saying lost, the one, the one, the thing that, I mean, this was a big budget film, so it's, 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 uh, not, not, not being used as a comparison, but more to highlight where people were being inventive in terms of how they got the audience was the thought, I thought that Prometheus was very successful in its, in its approach to the preamble to the movie in the sense that they didn't release clips of the movie. They actually made short form films that supplemented the film you were going to watch and helped to create the buzz that came with it. Whereas, I think, I'm trying to think now, uh, Ex Machina, which obviously a lot less budget than, than Prometheus, at South by Southwest, when it premiered, um, the actress, whose name I forget now, who plays the, the... Have you seen the film? No, it's Alicia Vikander, isn't it? Yeah, all right, so if, if it is, I'll take you with it. And Alicia, they set up a Tinder account for her. And the answers it gave was in was like as if it was a Turing test. Yeah. So people were having a conversation with this girl they thought was attractive, and in fact they were playing the role of uh, Mr. Gleason in the movie, but via Tinder, which is quite kind of quite nice. That's kind they're of actually like, in the story that you're putting your audience into your story world, mm. and they're engaging very directly with your story world. Mm. It's really cool. Um, well, well, look, we've, we've been talking now for an hour and I think we've, we've sort of covered a lot of ground and probably created as many questions as we've, we've tried to sort of answer of what's going on. Cause, cause I don't think there is an answer just yet. I think it's a very much an evolving world and it's great to get your take on it. And I've so an answer as soon if we, we solve everything we've just talked about and we do something and we make millions off this movie and everybody in the world watches it. No sooner have we done that, then the question will change. And then we'll have to figure it out again on the next one. So we'll have the same conversation in two years' time when we're releasing the next one. I think there are a lot of people trying to trying to get, trying to bottle it. I think at the moment to make it because uh... it's not just about the people selling the movies. It's also the confusing thing is for us the audience. And you know, as much as there are youthful, energetic people who are willing to try anything new, 
there is also an inherent conservatism to most audiences, which, which bottom line is, a word of mouth is worth a million tweets and emails. You know, if, if I turn around to you and say, you ask me what film should I see tonight, I can say this, this and this was good. And you can judge that really quite precisely as to whether or not you trust my opinion, yeah. you know. The rest of it is all is all marketing and it, all, everything that comes at you. And we are, and we're bombarded with a lot of information and not just about films, you know. Well, we're getting Finder's pancakes and cabbage chocolate and Apple, new Apple phones and whatever else. A new film is just another thing for us to consume. And a new film is something for us to comprehend um, in amongst all that noise. So I think... You know, I think we as people, I'm, I, I, I kind of, and maybe I'm just getting old. That 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 could just be it. Maybe it's not a problem. But um, but I've always thought, having worked in, and I've worked in a corporate comms background, where a lot of the times where you're trying to solve the problem of how do we get our message out, it's almost starting to the beginning point is understand that you're already in a sea of other messages. It's not about how do you define your message. It's about where does it fit within the other things that everyone's going on, and how do you disrupt that. Um, but yeah, like like we say, this is this is this is an evolving situation and one that will continue. And I hope we can we can maybe have you back on in ten twelve months time, whenever you get, if you get to your when you get to your release date and un, and begin to understand the world of the Tear Me Apart fan. And uh, we'll talk about this some more. So let's just remind people: you've got a world premiere when on thirty first of August, Halloween at the Austin Film Festival, Texas. Sorry, Sorry. you said August. Did I say August? <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, we've had the world premiere. It's done. Um, 31st of October, Halloween, at the Austin Film Festival in Texas is our world premiere. And the trailer is online. Um, now you can either follow us on Facebook, Tear Me Apart, um, or on Twitter, at Cannibal Films, and on Periscope, at Cannibal Films, or the trailer's on Vimeo as well. Okay, well, look, if you... If, if... If you email me all those um, links, I'll put them in the show notes so people can click on them very easily. And uh, only gets me to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having thanks us, Joe. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.